Before we get started, I just want to mention that this is being published the evening of November 22nd, Eastern Standard Time, or Eastern Daylight Savings Time now. I don't know. It, it, Virginia time. How about that? Anyhow, you have until the end of the day, you know, midnight on the 24th of November, Friday the 24th, just a couple days from when this is being published, to send in your entry, your thoughts about Kroll. So if you haven't watched Kroll and sent us your thoughts on that movie, the time's running out. That episode will come out on the 27th of November on Monday. It's coming Monday as this is being published. So if you haven't sent your calls in on Kroll, this is your last chance. Get those calls in. Okay, let's get into the episode. Pockets up a beer or a cold libation. Let me tell you how I wrote this little thing. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said I'll start off with some talking and some movie clips and popcorn, fighting fantasy explorations and some groundless exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I let the box come on, contest and the push. You know it's all about games. I said, slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds. With the other Jason. Welcome back to the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. For those listeners in the United States of America, happy Thanksgiving. For everybody else, I hope all is going well. This is just a call-in episode. I've got a number of calls built up. I'm going to publish all of those, and then I'll have more original content out on Sunday. So let's get into these calls. Oh, by the way, before we get into the calls, let me just say, these aren't necessarily in the order that I've received them, and there are some where listeners have sent sets of calls that I've broken those calls up. I've tried to kind of categorize these in different conversations, so the you know, if somebody sent multiple calls in about different topics, those calls might be separated. So just a heads up on that. Also, there is a great podcast. I think I mention it in the responses, but if I don't, M.W. Lewis over at the World's M.W. Lewis's episode 227 has an interview with Queller, who is one of the members of the Grog Empire, uh, AD&D first edition group. But they have a great conversation, even if you're not into AD&D First Edition. It's a conversation about running rules as written and why you might want to do that. It's a conversation about what to do with problem players. If you have players that don't want to engage between games, those kind of things. What to do if you have problem players or you have things. It's just a really interesting conversation. So, so I highly recommend you check that out. It's, I don't mean it make it sound bad. They're not bad-talking players over there. But it's really interesting uh, journey of a, of a gentleman that came back to the hobby who only played as a you know, young man, and he came back and said, I'm going to learn to GM, and by doing that, I'm going to pick one system. I'm going to run it by the book until I understand the book. And then, you know, maybe I'm in a house rule. And he even says, you know, obviously there are some things he has to make calls on and think, make rulings on on the spot. But it's a really interesting conversation. I do highly recommend it. There'll be a link in the show notes. That said, let's answer these calls. Who's on the phone? 
Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator's screaming is coming from inside the house. You know, when you're a podcaster and you talk about different topics, you never know what's going to get people's attention and generate a bunch of calls. Sometimes topics you think will be really popular and controversial just fall flat. And other times, a topic that you think isn't a big deal will really garner a lot of conversation. In an interview I made last month with Harrigan, he talked about call Cthulhu chase rules. And then we received a couple calls about that. And then I commented about one of those calls. And now that's generated a bunch more calls. So I was probably a little bit snide in my answer to Free Thrall, also known as Spencer from Keep Off the Borderlands. That wasn't really my intent, but, you know, I will definitely accept any blame that I deserve. Let's hear what my comments have wrought. Hey, you nasty man. What happened to be excellent to each other? I wasn't complaining about Andy. I simply said that he admitted to not being up on his chase rules. And by the sounds of it, thanks to Joe, he knew them better than he realised. Thanks for coming to my aid, Joe. Are you going to back me up on this? We're going to have to double-team this guy. I hope that means what I think it means. Luckily, Joe is here to answer Spencer's call. Yeah, man. I also wanted to call in and talk about your response to my call in about the Call of Cthulhu chase rules. In your response, you said that the Call of Community, the Call of Cthulhu community thinks the chase rules are complicated. And I found that an interesting statement because the members of the Call of Cthulhu community that I've talked to about chase rules who have actually used them don't tend to find them complicated, whereas the people who haven't used them say they're complicated. That's kind of interesting. So yeah, I don't think the entire Call of Cthulhu community thinks the chase rules are complicated. But I wasn't trying to say they were or weren't complicated. I was just calling in because while it might have been an unintentional misrepresentation of the facts. I just wanted to put the record straight that the Call of Cthulhu chase rules are not 21 pages long. The chapter in which those chase rules are in is 21 pages long. That's a big, big difference. Again, the Call of Cthulhu chase rules could be put on an index card, no problem. Yeah, the rest of it is, like I said, just art and uh, examples of play. So anyway, man, that's it. Take it easy, dude. Peace out. Hang in there. Hope you're doing well. And yeah, peace out again. Hey, Jason. It's Anthony calling in from the road in response to Harrigan's response to Spencer's response and in support of Joe's response, but also a point of a further point of clarification about those old people on the internet who complain about the chase rules in Call of Cthulhu. When 7th edition came out, there was a lot of noise about the chase rules. It's exciting, we finally have chase rules in Call of Cthulhu, it was said. But of course, chase rules had existed in Call of Cthulhu from the 3rd edition onward, and they appeared during 2nd edition to be incorporated fully into 3rd edition. So there's a little pushback about that. We finally have chase rules. Then, yeah, it's a 20-some page chapter 
It's its own separate mini-game, as, as Joe rightfully calls it, in 7th edition, which is cool. It's quite easy. Um, it reads complicated, but that's a whole different issue. But by comparison, the original chase rules actually were simple. And in the book, they were the size of a note card. And they were very flexible. They were good for foot races, car races, horse races, whatever races that you, you know, might be using as a mechanical underpinning for a chase. What the original chase rules lacked were the tables that Joe is, uh, you know, has mentioned. Things about vehicle breakdowns and, and that sort of stuff. And uh, you know, about a million years ago, I, I put up a similar idea on my blog for things that you can, you can do in chases with vehicles to more quickly uh, be able to improvise cool things that happen during a chase. You know, if the dice indicate that there's been a setback or if there's been a, uh, a boon to your escape, that kind of thing, well, what, what would that be? You know, some, sometimes you can find yourself flat-footed in your imagination and, and not really be able to come up with anything. So the idea of having tables that take care of that is a really good one and supportive one. So the chase rules in 7th edition, you know, they work. People can get intimidated by them, but they, you know, they're logical and they're, they're useful. They fit in with uh, what the game is going for in its 7th edition. Prior to 7th edition, the chase rules were you know, visibly simpler, less intimidating, and didn't give you as much support for, you know, imagining things on the fly. They didn't give you random tables and things, but uh, but you could learn them in the blink of an eye. So I just wanted to throw that in there uh, to help continue using your blog as a clearinghouse for all conversation about all things gaming. Take care. Well, what a hornet's nest we've stepped into there. I think what we really need now is somebody to call in to defend the idea that Call of Cthulhu Chase rules are complicated. Until then, it looks like one side has spoken louder than the other. You know, another controversial topic is the idea of a gold-based economy in Dungeons & Dragons. And I talked about that just briefly in the beginning of a previous episode. And that call or that discussion generated a number of calls. Let's tune into those now. Hey Jason, this is Graveslug. I was calling in uh, regarding your comment in the opener to this uh, gold gold standard episode uh, regarding the camp of people that uh, you know take the line of uh, oh, these two armors didn't exist at the same time. This, you know, blah, blah, blah. Which, that's fine if that is the setting you want to play in. But not to, like, push that onto the entirety of the game. Because it's honestly, like, a, I mean, I don't know. It's a pretty big failing of the imagination, in my opinion. When you consider that in our world today... That's not fantasy. That's not make believe. Exists at the same time, like high tech plate carrier armor exists at the same time as like hunter gatherer 
tribal communities wearing banana leaves and bone armbands and like stuff like that so it's like i just don't think it's that much of a stretch to it's not that much of a stretch to have like someone in greek armor fighting someone in 17th you know whatever medieval armor um and now they say about the tribal things like the the those like uncontacted tribes and stuff like that are pretty much living D and D like today because you got you know they're they're dealing with uh you know they still got the dangers of the night and creatures of the night and all their like folklore and and uh monsters and stuff like that and then you got freaking dragons flying overhead in the form of airplanes that like how are you gonna explain that uh you know they have no idea what what that dragon is capable of but i don't know just some funny food for thought see you later next up we have eric of the omega 3d chicken coop podcast one element that you mentioned, Jason, that I thought was interesting when you were talking about the gold standard and the fact that D&D is a post-apocalyptic world, blah, 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 is that I, majority of the time, have never actually played D&D that way. And especially in my early days, I didn't even look at Appendix N or read any of the, the literature from that time period. So it wasn't a point of reference for me. So I ran D&D and, and mostly run my fantasy games as just high fantasy kind of, uh, you know, uh, a take on, on Europe or some other part of the world or a mix of, of that. And I don't incorporate the, the old lost civilizations that were super modern. There might be old civilizations, but they were more magical than, than modern, which I know sometimes modern technology can be considered magic to, to the folks in those fantasy worlds. But I think that's a, I think that's a generational difference because you're, you're a couple years older than me. And I think, the era that grew up with Robert E. Howard, like Conan, the barbarian and, and, um, dying earth stuff. I think that that's more part of, um, your history with gaming. You know, I, I, you take a look at my favorite book series, which is wheel of time. Um, growing up, you know, Robert Jordan was a big Conan fan, wrote some Conan novels. He incorporated that into his story, the lost civilization after all the, you know, cataclysms, have had modern technology. We like flying ships and different things. So, you know, and it took me a long time while reading those books through high school to realize that's what he was talking about. Um, and I've never really incorporated it in my game. So I, what I would say is not everyone runs D&D as a post-apocalyptic, you know, um, Western thing. I, that was really didn't enter my understanding until later in life. So anyway, man, those are my thoughts on the topics. Take it easy. Hi, Jason. Spencer here. And, uh, well, brace yourself for a completely uninformed comment because I'm just recording a response to the opening of your most recent episode about whether we should have a gold standard because that's the title of the episode. You no doubt go on to discuss that in further detail. But I just wanted to record what went through my mind as I was listening. And, yeah, I'm totally on board with that whole idea of D&D's assumed setting being post-apocalyptic, faux medieval, wild west. 
that's kind of been there from the beginning. It's something that runs through Appendix N. I have to confess that I have yet to listen to that Wandering DMs episode that inspired your comments. So I may be way off here. But isn't one of the joys of D&D that you can make it your own? If you want to make it a bit more authentic, European medieval, then sure. And if that means that the gold standard doesn't work for you, then change that too. Then again, we are talking about fantasy here. I mean, thinking of our own King Arthur, someone who's historically supposed to be a Romano-Celtic hero from the 5th century, is readily depicted as being kind of steeped in all that heraldic knights in shining armour garb that's straight from the 15th century. It's an entire millennium out. And obviously that's all to do with when those stories were written by those Normans trying to create their own British folklore that predates the Anglo-Saxon culture they were trying to subjugate. But uh, yeah, I'm going off on a tangent now and it's a completely different point I think I've wandered into. But anyway, I just wanted to share those thoughts with you because fantasy is about mashing together Things we enjoy, is it not? Let's get back to listening to the rest of the episode. Take care. Hi, Jason. Goblin Sentiment here. So I'm trying your speak pipe thing out. Um, just a couple of comments on your recent um, observation about people wanting to use a silver-based economy as opposed to a gold-based economy. Um, I have to say, I do agree with you. Uh, I like gold as the base for the economy. Um, you know, I don't think it matters that Western Europe... You know, this is what you said. It doesn't matter if Western Europe didn't have that much gold. I think there seems to be a trend to try to take the fantastical out of fantasy. You know, I like I like the gold-based system because it's it's different. It makes definitely takes you into a different place uh, than you know, boring old realistic. <laughs> um, the other thing that made me wonder about is that if you're going to go on a silver-based economy system instead of gold then surely you need to start giving XP for silver, not XP for gold, because you've sort of debased the, the standard. But if you then index XP for gold, if you're, you're going to do that system um, to, a, to a higher standard than you're currently using, and people will find it harder to level up. Anyway, uh, interesting thoughts, and I should probably go and listen to that Wandering DMs episode. Um, it's been a while since I listened to one of their shows. Uh, when I did, it was definitely good stuff, so... Probably should uh, go and listen. Maybe they cover this very topic. <laughs> right, cheers, bye. Hello, Jason. This is Michael again. Merc the Meek at uh, Audio Dungeon Discord. Um, I just wanted to uh, show my appreciation for your episode about why not a gold standard. Uh, I, I know you had some brief comments there about how we're not trying to recreate uh, a simulation of Western Europe in the medieval period. And I really appreciate that. I just want to add, though, it is interesting if you stop looking, if you stop being so Eurocentric and you go somewhere to like ancient China. Um, it, I was listening to a water margin podcast, which is one of the Chinese classics, and it's set roughly in the 12th century. And they had paper money to some extent. And 
in the the narrative they talk about paying for things in 10,000 strings of coins so you know they had a lot of coinage it doesn't wasn't all gold um usually it was more like silver and it wasn't all silver you know it was like lead wrapped in silver but if you look around in history you can almost find what you're looking for when it comes to the the type of game you want to play not that you know you need historical accuracy to play the game you want to play i totally agree with you on that um fun is more important than historical accuracy in all respects but i just i find it interesting that we get so hung up on western europe and there's riches in history all throughout the world so thanks take care what a great set of calls not only do they show diverse set of opinions but the ability to talk about these things in a civilized manner without just yelling bad, wrong, fun and pointing at each other. I want to address Michael's call. You know, coins strung on a string like that is something that Palladium Fantasy does. And that always fascinated me since I saw that for the very first time. The outwalls of the water margin and the water margin, all that stuff is really interesting. I don't know if you're into forums at all, old-style web forums, but over at the RPG Pub, there's a great thread on Outlaws of the Water Margin. And I'll put a link in the show notes. And not only are there discussions about the the actual books and all that, and movies related to and all that kind of thing, there's also, you can find a draft of the role-playing game, and the author that wrote that draft weighs in and discusses. So it's really cool. As far as a published role-playing game... In those kind of settings, Wandering Heroes of the Ogre Gate by Bedrock Games is great. Um, they even have the Strange Tales of a Songling, which is kind of like a Chinese horror role-playing game, which is really neat. Uh, definitely worth checking out. The recent game, Carl came on and talked about it. Carl from the Geomologist Presents came and talked about it. The Osprey Publishing role-playing game, Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades, is actually just kind of a watered-down version of, or a condensed version of Wandering Heroes of the Ogre Gate. So if if you're looking for something more substantial, it's worth checking that out. Other comments in there, Eric? Yeah, that's true. The, not everybody's going to have played it in the, with the idea of it being post-apocalyptic or any of that, but I think there's enough elements that are different than a simulation of European history. I mean, this isn't chivalry and sorcery, and this isn't some of the other games that are trying to, or say Pendragon, where it's a very specific kind of thing. In Pendragon, we would expect to use the kind of currency and barter and, and stuff they used back then, right? We wouldn't expect it to be fantasy, whatever. But D&D is not even necessarily, your campaign could be set on Earth, but D&D itself isn't necessarily even Earth. You, you know what I mean? So... I don't know. But I appreciate all those responses. Very, very good conversation. And if anybody else has thoughts, please, please call them in. By the way, if you want a silver standard in your world, then do that. It's okay. I don't want to come across saying that you're wrong to change from having a gold standard economy. That's not my point in all this. I just find it interesting that people, that's a hot topic among some people that they really have problems with having a gold-based economy when, you know, so many other things are different from the real-life situation. That's all. But I'm not telling other people they shouldn't change to a silver economy. If that's what they're 
they like, then cool, go for it. I, at no point in here am I trying to tell people they're wrong to change, change things. So just want to make that clear. I don't think we've said it earlier in the podcast, but all the ways to call in and make comments are in the show notes. You can do it a variety of different ways. Okay, now let's move on to the next set of calls, and they have to do with Beckme, Basic Expert Companion Master Immortal. These are Frank Menser's basic set that started coming out in 1983, and then the Rules Cyclopedia that came out in the early 90s the rules cyclopedia was kind of a condensation of those rules and putting them all together almost as a reference book. It was actually written by and compiled by Aaron Alston. So let's hear some calls about those products. Hey Jason, it's Anthony calling in from the road. Just listening to your recent episode where you took a second look at the D&D rules cyclopedia uh, this was not a product that was available when I was playing Dungeons and Dragons, but it is one of the products that I picked up when Wizards of the Coast started to release the older stuff. Uh, just for the same reasons that you mentioned, it seems like an ideal reference for the Beckme material, and I would have loved it back when I was playing D&D. Uh, it was really unwieldy to be playing with all those different box sets and trying to cart them around, particularly if you were stuck like I was, having to, you know, surreptitiously play Dungeons and Dragons because of the satanic panic and trying to hide all this stuff in your school bag or whatever. Um, yeah, really annoying. So having just one book, that would have been killer. Uh, I also particularly enjoyed your focus on Masters. The weapon proficiency stuff in Masters really, really got my uh, attention back then. And uh, I managed to get a copy of it in my last year of high school. I got It and Immortals at a used bookstore, which sprang up at the beginning of my last year of high school, and it closed at the end of my last year of high school. And that's where I got my very used copies of the of the DMG and the Player's Handbook, and, and I got Masters, and I got Immortals there. And uh, yeah, all good memories of, uh, of those days. So anyway, thanks for bringing back uh, that heavy dose of nostalgia and remembrance for this long commute. Take care. Anthony, I'm glad that I've stirred some memories up, and really we're just starting to scratch the surface. I'm kind of opening the door to the topic of talking about these rule sets, and they are kind of two separate rule sets, although they're really related and pretty interchangeable. And I look forward to ongoing discussions about them as I use them in solo play. Our next call on this topic is from Joe over at Raven Guy Games. So let's hear what he has to say. Hey, Jason, just wanted to give you a call about Rules Cyclopedia. Um, yeah, I keep putting it off, and you knew I had some things going on this, this week. Um, but I told you I'd give you a call, so I'm, I'm doing that. Um, yeah, man, Rules Cyclopedia, really cool. I never, I never played it back in the day. I never actually owned it uh, until, you know, just a few years ago. Um, 
when I bought the reprint. But you know, I did have all the box sets. Uh, that was the, that was my introduction to role playing. Um, and yeah, I got to agree that I do like those better. I really like the red box and the expert set specifically, and the companion set was really good too. Um, I like them for the instructional use you can get out of them for the learning of the game. You're not hit with everything uh, all at once. Um, you you know you learn your classes as they increase in levels through the different through the different box sets. You you get the extra rules when they kind of come into play. Like you were talking about the weapon mastery, which I think is amazing. <clears throat> I love that all the different weapons um, you know do different things. It's it becomes really crunchy. Um, I mean, I guess there's probably some some rules mastery involved with it, uh, but a, you know, it's just super cool, man. Like, and a lot of that is is totally leading, I think. If not into second edition, I'm, I'm not sure about the timing that Companion came out, but I think it would have been before second edition. At any rate, uh, if not leading into that, basically, certainly being <clears throat> um, influenced by it, right? So those two things are the connection there is really interesting. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, we played it a couple months, a couple years ago, I guess. Yeah, two years already. Um, year and a half. Anyway, uh, it was fun, man. We, we had a good time. It was, it was a cool experiment. Um, <laughs> your first adventure was really dangerous. And uh, yeah, and I was kind of, you know, I don't, not, I don't know, maybe not expecting how dangerous it was. But yeah, whatever. It was a good time. Uh, so anyway, I'm just kind of rambling, but very cool. I want to check out those videos that you mentioned because um, I haven't I haven't seen those, uh, and I, I should probably say that um, our game probably would have gone a little bit better if I was if I had a little bit more rules mastery with it. I just kind of jumped into it, um, but yeah. Anyway, uh, hope all is well, buddy. Appreciate you. Hello, Jason. It is Eric of the Omega 3D Chicken Coop calling in to uh, comment on a couple interesting comments you made. This was regarding skills. Um, so the, you made a couple interesting points regarding, you know, you don't want the wizard to be able to out tightrope a rogue just because the wizard has a higher deck score, or maybe you don't want the fighter to be able to out sneak the thief because the game has a skill system where you just roll under decks for sneaking. And, and yeah, I agree with both of those elements because what, what you're doing there, especially in a game where there's roles and certain character classes are filling those roles, you don't want other classes stepping on top of the role, right? And, and taking over that role for them. And in some modern games do this, I, I don't know, I think it's by design, but also by accident because they want characters to be able to fulfill multiple roles with the same type of character. Like, you know, maybe a paladin can also be a damage dealer or a tank. It kind of goes back to like MMO build trees where you can build the characters in different ways. But I agree, you don't you don't want them stealing their thunder essentially, and not allowing them to um, to to do the thing that they're supposed to be really good at, you know. So I don't know what the perfect number of skills are for a game, and and I have gone back and forth in this in my gaming life on do I like big skillless or not like skillless. I'm at the point now where I don't even want skillless, and I like the profession concept or its straight attribute. Um, and typically in those games, the attributes are very driven by the character archetype you're playing. So you won't often have the big brawling fighter 
that also has a high dexterity or the really smart wizard that also has a high dexterity. So typically it's the fast or rogue characters or the nimble characters that are maintaining that high dexterity. So, so that's their niche is they do that um, dexterity stuff. The other element that I don't like about skills, and this happens in older games and some modern games, is like, okay, so I'm a wizard like, and I, there's a sword on the ground. I want to pick it up and attack with it. And it's like some games, at least the rulings I've heard, and maybe the game rules aren't explicit about this, but they're like, nope, you can't. You're a wizard. You do not have sword proficiency. You cannot swing a sword. And I, and I have a hard time with that because in the real world, while I don't have sword proficiency, I can grab that sword and wave it around and try to attack something. Now, maybe ineffective. I might have a low attack bonus. If I fumble, I might actually cut myself, but I can pick it up. And that kind of goes with other skills where it's like, I get frustrated if I'm playing a game, I'm like, oh, I want to do this thing. And they're like, nope, you can't do that. Well, why can't I do that? Well, you don't have the skill for it. You're like, but it's an everyday skill. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want the the game mechanics to be so constrictive that if it's a thing, a reasonable thing that a normal person could do, then I, I want to be able to do it, right? It's just like, in a, in a game of, um, I know I've played in some Pathfinder 1E games where my character didn't have the knockdown ability, right? So I couldn't physically knock someone down. And maybe Joe will, will call in and correct me and say, uh, well, Eric, actually in Pathfinder 1E, anyone can attempt a knockdown, right? But I just remember in the game that we were playing, we couldn't knock anything down. It was either impossible to do or the probability of it su- succeeding was so low that it was such a suboptimal choice that no one would ever do it. Anyway, I think I rambled enough about skills. Um, hopefully something useful in there. Take it easy, man. Thank you, everyone, for those calls. I think at some point maybe we'll do a roundtable, get a number of luminaries together who are familiar and have played Beckme and Rule Cyclopedia for years and discuss this rule set. But I need to finish rereading everything before we do that roundtable. Now, the next set of calls have to do with Gonzo. And this was a call-in in response. Well, it kind of started with when Harrigan was on. And then it was a call-in about that. And it kind of spiraled from there. So let's hear what people have to say about the term Gonzo and Gonzo Games. Hey, Jason. Eric of the Omega 3D Chicken Coop calling in. Um, I wanted to get in on this uh, Gonzo conversation. Um, because I, I thought it was kind of interesting and uh, I'll start off with Peter. So Peter made some comments regarding Gonzo and I um, disagree mildly with one element that he discussed and then I agree with some of the other stuff. So I'll start with what I disagree with. Peter discussed that most people don't want comedy in their games. I guess from my anecdotal experience, I would say that's not true. Um, oftentimes as the game master, you know, I had a hard time in various games trying to rein the tone in where it feels like a majority of players want a lot of comedy in their game and sometimes it, it's at the detriment of the game or to some of the uh, you know like if there's five players at the table one of them doesn't want a lot of comedy and the other four do or there's two that really want a lot of comedy that even exceeds the other two and you have to kind of rein that in um, but generally speaking I would say that that comedy is from my online games to convention games I've been in, it's been a pretty standard element of the games. 
Uh, the part that I will agree with about comedy is that it definitely feels like in Gonzo games that there is a higher comedy element added to it. And I think that might be a defense mechanism to the content of the game, right? So you add in all these crazy weird things that don't make sense to the game. How do you react as a human to that? Do you react, you know, you, you, you can't figure out how to react because it's not something that makes sense in your brain. So you tend to just make jokes or um, react in a comical way. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like Gonzo settings is I have a hard time figuring out how do I react to the to the game? What? How does this work? Like I, I just don't like it. And that's, and that's probably one of the reasons outside of the mechanics that I've never been a fan of the, the Troika setting is it just doesn't make sense to me. Like I don't know what this is supposed to be. You know, like that's that's how I feel when I'm playing in a Gonzo game. I was like, I don't know what this is. Meanwhile, in a weird science, a weird fantasy game, to me, that's more of a defined genre. I can kind of, I can figure out like, okay, this is what this world is like. This is how they react to this type of stuff. Like, I, I can figure that out, and I can I can work within that. Um, you know, and you know, and one of the games I run, Solar Blades and Cosmic Spells, does have what I'll consider some Gonzo elements in it, and they're mostly in the form of random tables. And so when I've rolled on those random tables before and gotten those Gonzo elements, I have incorporated them. But what I've been finding with myself running that game most recently is, in reality, I just want to run uh, space opera or um, space wizards. So, you know, basically Star Wars, but not in Star Wars. So um, I, th I think after this current campaign, I'm going to I'm going to drift away from Solar Blaze for a little bit just because it has some elements like cosmic whales with um, hippie pilgrims riding on the back of it and cosmic sharks that can attack your ship and, you know, different things like that, that, you know, I consider them to be a bit on the gonzo side of things. Hey, Jason, me again. Yeah, third call. Get me learning from the best, obviously. I just wanted to respond to Spets Baby's call. Uh, I thought that was an interesting take on gonzo, it being the mashing up of different genres. Because I view weird similarly as kind of the crossing of genres, but coming from the perspective of predating the separation of genre, you know, the separation of things into horror, sci-fi, fantasy. And I'm thinking of writers like Clark Ashton Smith here, someone who I'm not certainly as familiar with as I'd like to be. I'm also thinking of stuff like Jeff Vandermeer's work where you're not really aware of whether what you're reading is kind of sci-fi or fantasy or horror. And there's elements of all that going on and things could be interpreted in a number of ways. I do like ambiguity. I do like being surprised. And I do like perhaps being disorientated. And on the subject of Gonzo, did you ever get round to revisiting Thundar the Barbarian? Because I'd really love to hear why you don't consider that to be Gonzo, because for me, it's kind of the epitome of Gonzo in the sense that the episodes almost feel as if they've been put together using a bunch of random tables that have little regard for specific genres. Anyway, really enjoyed the episode. Uh, take care. I'll speak soon. I think the 
common definition that we're using for Gonzo has evolved since I made that comment on Thunder of the Barbarian Spencer. But no, I sadly have not had a chance to revisit. I do plan to revisit them. But I don't know. But is it weird? Because it's science fantasy is Thundar. And yeah, it's weird. Is it Gonzo? Maybe. I need to revisit them. But probably it, it is Gonzo. But without revisiting them, I'm not going to lock myself into that opinion. So I still owe you that answer, my friend. From what Eric said, I kind of agree with him with the comedy. I like Manya. I'm more of a beer and pretzels player. I can play in serious games and, and be serious throughout the whole game. That's not a problem. But I do kind of like my comedy and asides. And and I definitely am one of the people that viewed one of Eric Solar Blade's Cosmic Spells games as Futurama, the role-playing game, and treated it that way. So, you know, I guilty is charged on that. Make Taking Gonzo and using that as a reason to ramp up the comedy, I think, is fair. These next couple calls have to do with that interview I did with James Knight, where he came out of his deep freeze and talked about his gaming since then and the games he's played and ran and how he was looking for a science fiction role-playing game system to run in the Revelation space universe. Now, the first call from Commodore is just a science fiction game recommendation, not necessarily specific to Revelation space, but it still sounds like a really neat game that is worth checking out. Then we have Runeslinger Anthony joining in to talk about Thousand Suns. Then we have James himself calling in to give us an update on his progress and what's going on with him. Let's turn it over to Commodore. Hey, Jason. This is Commodore again from Colbyte Press. I heard you were looking for recommendations of sci-fi games, and I thought I might hop in with something that is completely free and as independent as it gets. Uh, over at itch.io, there's a guy named Nameless Designer. I went in depth actually reviewing his fantasy system that is completely free. His Heroes of Adventure system was an interesting deep, dark delve that I went down. But I also noticed he had a system called Outpost 5. It's a sci-fi RPG about exploring, scavenging, and survival. Uh, it uses a pretty standard D20 mechanic with skills as extra dice instead of any kind of static bonus. It's set up to be a outpost-based game where everyone begins in sort of a hard scrabble aliens, XCOM kind of a situation. It looks like it has everything that his original game had, but everything is scaled way into the sci-fi. Characters will not survive for very long if they are in any kind of fight. Everything is tough. Everything's a little scary. This is not your Star Wars epic adventure. This is much more you're on the ship an alien or you are having a Firefly moment. Anyway... I just thought I would drop by with a little recommendation. The dude seems really awesome. He, uh, I talked with him a little bit. Not my system, not affiliated with it in any, any way, shape, or form, but I thought I'd give some attention to it. Outpost 5, like I said, guy's giving it away at itch, and I have a lot of recommendations for that. Anyway, hope you have a good episode. Hey, Jason. It's Anthony calling in, this time to support uh, Peter's 
comments about Thousand Suns. <laughs> it's a, a really well done kind of compact game. It, they're digest size books. Uh, it occupies the same kind of of niche as Traveler. And, you know, this imperial science fiction. So there's a, a a lot in the older fiction that we may have read, you know, growing up in uh, the late 70s or the 80s uh, that it, it can do very handily. And, uh, you know, it uses D12s, which is cool. And you're probably already very familiar with how it works based on other games that you've played and that sort of stuff. So it's it's just really easy to get into and it's kind of inspiring. There's numerous books. There's the, you know, Thousand Suns itself. There's a book for spaceships and there's a setting book uh, if you're interested in, you know, seeing an example setting, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's pretty easy to get into. Anyway, take care. Hey, Jason. James Knight from over in London in the UK again. Uh, just a separate message as promised. Um, just going over some of the games I played last weekend up in Manchester for Grog Meet 2023, which is the gaming convention organized by Dirk and Blythe from the Grognard Files. Uh, yeah, it was a fantastic weekend. Um, I headed up there on Friday morning, got there in time for lunch, had a quick pint before gaming commenced. And in the afternoon session, uh, in years gone by, they've done a kind of a multi-table format where everyone's essentially playing in the same game, same world, and different tables are kind of competing against each other. Um, I think the con was slightly larger this year, and we were split up over two venues. So that wasn't uh, the exact format, but there was a theme to the initial afternoon session, and it was all games... Uh, playing published scenarios either from the classic early 80s White Dwarf era or from uh, Imagine magazine. And I played a White Dwarf scenario called the Snowbird Mystery that was a scenario for Original Traveller. So uh, looping back to my the ongoing discussions about a system for my sci-fi game, it was very cool to play Original Traveller. I thought it was a very flexible system. We did investigation, uh, some close quarters combat. We did some ship to ship combat. Um, lots of kind of, uh, tech, tech related stuff, lots of bargaining. So yeah, I found it really, uh, cool and simple system. I think we probably, the nature of being a one shot, we maybe weren't exploring the system fully, but it was a very enjoyable game and it certainly worked for the scenario. Um, so that was really cool. And then in the evening, I played a 2000 AD game uh, that was adapted by a guy called Daily Dwarf that people might be familiar with from Twitter. He has an account where he reposts scans from the classic era of White Dwarf. Um, and he's a real master of adapting 2000 AD uh, stories to role-playing games. He tends to use Savage Worlds, which, again, is a really cool system for it. Um, it certainly played into this scenario, which was a game of Zombo, which is a relatively recent 2018 strip by Henry Flint and Al Ewing. Really cool. It's about uh, a zombie who has been developed by the government in the sort of medium term future, I'd say. I'd say it's not near future or far future. It's kind of like a slightly dystopic medium term future. 
and uh, humans have gone out into space and they've discovered what, what are called death worlds, that are these very deadly planets. So the government has developed a zombie who they deploy as an agent to go and uh, subdue these death planets. And uh, we were kind of playing in this world and it was, you know, incredibly pulpy, very tongue in cheek, humorous stuff. And I thought Savage really lent itself to that. I also had my best ever uh, run of exploding die. Six D6s in a row exploded for me at one point, which is pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, that was an awesome game. And as I say, Daily Dwarf really is the master of 2080 adaptations. Uh, and then on the Saturday in the morning, I played a really cool uh, Cthulhu hack. So like a, a, a rules-like version of Call of Cthulhu that a guy called Paul Baldowski over here in the UK that runs the All Rolled Up company. He's written. Uh, it's basically like Black Hat meets Cthulhu, uh, super simple. And the guy running it was from Edinburgh, and he ran a King in Yellow slash Carcosa haunted romp through the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, uh, where we played a theatrical company who'd been visited in our dreams and were impelled by our dream to put on a performance of the King in Yellow. And shenanigans ensued. Uh, yeah, great, great scenario with some beautiful maps of old Edinburgh town. Uh, and then on Sunday afternoon evening, I played a really cool game uh, called Shadows of the Dying Earth, which is an OSR Dying Earth, you know, heavily Book of the New Sun, June, Jack Vance Dying Earth influence system. Really cool. Um Very well run by the GM. And he really utilised the system has a, a thing called the Heron's Path, which is a character path where you're simultaneously taking boons and scars. So your character's getting more powerful, but also getting more kind of beaten down and bedraggled, which was really interesting. And he kind of amped that up and expedited it versus how it would be in campaign play. So within the, the course of the one shot, our characters were taking on uh, lots of different character changes. Uh, so, yeah, really awesome weekends gaming. If anyone either in the UK listening has never been, I highly recommend it. And if anyone is ever feeling like coming over for uh, a good weekend's convention gaming uh, from the US or wherever, I can highly recommend Grogmeat. Okay, cheers, Jason. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, Jason. James Knight again. A quick PS to say I also wanted to thank uh, Daniel Norton um, for mentioning Coriolis. That is another one that is on my list. And it looks like a really uh, nice book. So you know how it goes. Any excuse to buy another nice book. But yeah, the system does look cool. I think I saw a free quick start PDF of that a while ago and it did look good. But yeah, it's on my list to get the book and read it properly. So thanks, Daniel. And I see, Jason, that uh, your episode uh, 576, I believe, just dropped, which is more calling. So I will uh, digest that soon and I'm sure get back to you soon as well. All right. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you, James, for that update. Thank you, Commodore and Anthony, for weighing in on ideas for James and for everybody else, of course. I look forward to seeing what James ends up deciding and getting James back on the show to discuss his Revelation Space game as it develops. Very cool gaming that you've gotten over there. I would love to come over there for a gaming holiday. I kind of have a feeling if I brought the family over there... I don't know if I could get to a game. I kind of think there'd be other things they'd want to do. But who knows? There's always hope. Hello, Jason. This is Michael uh, Merk the Meek on the Audio Dungeon Discord. 
Uh, hoping you're having a good Thanksgiving coming up here. Uh, I was listening to Down in the Heaps podcast about his Into the Box combat system, and I heard you reply there. So I wasn't sure if I should respond here or over there, but I guess I'm responding here. So I know in the semi-recently you were talking about how you were a little, um, you know, um, uncertain how to handle hit points and recovery in, I think it was AD&D, because uh, you don't like how quickly or how long it takes to recover those um, hit points as you level up. And uh, I was curious on your take after listening to the Intel the Box stuff from Rob over at Down in the Heap, what you thought of a system like that to kind of fix it. So you have that strong separation between what is your ability to dodge damage and then actually getting wounded and how quickly you can recover your hit protection, but it takes a while to recover your constitution damage. So just curious uh, your opinion on that. Um, I, I found it very fascinating and it might be something to adopt as kind of like a compromise between a group that wants to play D&D with the six stats and wanting to uh, do quicker combats or whatever. So, yeah, just curious what you think. Thanks. Take care. Michael, thank you for that call. I do recommend folks go listen to Down in the Heap. Great podcast. Rob is locked out of Discord at the moment, but he's still putting out episodes. As far as that goes, I like that personally. I think for my solo game, I'm going to play Rules as Written with Beckme instead of modifying it. Well, that's not totally true. I'm going to fiddle with weapon proficiency, weapon um, expertise a little bit and fiddle with the skills a little bit. But as far as the healing and the magic and all that, I'm going to pretty much leave that alone and, and just play that way. But personally, I do like that. I like the idea that your skill and luck is tracked a little bit separate from your hit points and that that way if you're really wounded it takes a long time to heal up but that skill and luck after whether it's a long rest or you know a night's rest or whatever or after five minutes and and drinking you, you know a shot of whiskey you're ready to go again right i don't know um, i kind of like that but I, i'm gonna back off from adjusting the the rules of the game i'm playing to reflect that if that makes sense uh, i, I want to give Beck me and Rule Cyclopedia chance to to play rules as written healing wise without fiddling with it. So, but thank you for that call and I do appreciate it. Next up, we have John Francois over at a new podcast I talked about the other day. The link is again going to be in the show notes and just calling in a thank you and I really appreciate that. And so I'm going to play it. Hey, what's up, Jason? I uh, just want to take a few seconds to uh, thank you for the quick shout-out. just want to say thank you for the quick shout-out you gave me in your last episode. I hope it's going to uh, allow the, uh, the podcast to have more visibility. And, uh, yeah, and I hope you appreciated the, uh, the answer I gave you. So this is a quick test as well to see if the, Spotify, uh, the podcast or Spotify uh, anchor uh, voice message is uh, still working. So, yeah, feel free to let me know if it works. Yes, it does work. And thank you so much for the kind words. 
I really enjoy your show, and I'm looking forward to it. Folks, if you're not listening, again, the link's in the show notes. Go check it out. Now, let's play the last call of the show, fittingly, from my friend Joe. Yo, Jason, hope you're hanging in there, dude. Just got finished listening to your latest episode that you did with Daniel, where you two are talking about Brain Smasher love story during your amazing year of pun retrospective. This has just been such a fun series of episodes. Thank you for doing this, Jason. You've introduced me to a couple of his movies that I didn't know he did, and it's just been a blast hearing you guys all talk about them. It was super fun being a part of one of those episodes, and yeah, I thought the banter between you and Daniel was great. It did make me chuckle when you were talking about how Andrew Dice Clay is a controversial figure. Is it is or was? <laughs> I mean, 30 years ago he was. I don't know if he still is. Does anyone even know who he is anymore? I don't know. But you guys did a great job of breaking down the movies. And remember, folks, if you sent a call in to Jason and you haven't heard it on this episode, have no fear. It will appear. Colin, thank you for that reminder. Although I think I've played all the calls, except, of course, for the Crawl Movie Monday. So if you've sent in calls that you haven't heard that don't deal with the movie Crawl, then reach out to me and let me know that. I want to thank all the callers. Great, great input. Really enjoy it. Keep them coming. I want to thank TJ for the wonderful music. Ray Otis for the great coffee cup clip art. Of course, all the listeners. I want to thank Colin over at Spike Pit for that message that we just heard. And of course, I want to ask you all to be excellent to each other. Talk to you soon. About your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I better shoot him dead. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. There is a dustbin in your moilest body zipper And I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Well the zombies are arising and the world is gone to hell We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train wreck